This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Welcome to the Weekend Mailbag. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And I'm joined, as always, by the owner, the operator, the lead reporter, the whole shebang over at JetsInsider.com. And, of course, above all that, a very big deal, Mr. Chris Nimbley. Chris, what's going on, sir? You know, not too much. Still just enjoying this vacation and, like, I have this mixture of uh, the jealousy and envy and also uh, not wanting anything to do with being an NBA reporter and everything that's going on there because, man, that looks like a lot of fun and a whole lot more work than I have to deal with. I have it on good authority that Adrian Wojnarowski hasn't slept in about six months. Yeah, he he can't sleep. I how can he possibly sleep? I mean, that is that poor soul. Like, oh my god, how how why why are you doing that to yourself, Woj? I actually, know somebody that worked with him for a little bit, and he said Woj is seriously tireless, which is not a surprise to anybody that knows anything about the stuff that he puts out there. But the guy is just a workhorse. He just goes and goes and goes like the Energizer Bunny. I don't know who the equivalent of that would be in the NFL. Maybe Adam Schefter or Ian Rappaport yeah, or something. Yeah, Shefty. It's yeah, it's Shefty, but. It's and it's, this isn't anything against Schefter. It's just the NFL, the way the NFL works, as opposed to NBA. It's just not nearly as busy. And there's like a two week period where it's even close to that. But the NBA, it's just madness with the player movement. And from from afar, being a fan, it's it's a whole lot of fun. But yeah. Uh, having having to actually cover that and work about it. I was listening to a Levitard show earlier, and uh, Royce Young, who covers the Thunder, when when they traded uh, Paul George, he said he was asleep, and his wife woke him up to tell him the news. He had, he had no <laughs> idea, and he, he felt bad about it, because he's like, this is my job to know where did this come from. That doesn't sound fun. It definitely doesn't sound fun. Sometimes I wonder if talking about breaking news is something that could harm your mental state, or at least if you're talking about it in the middle of the night because your wife had to wake you up out of a deep sleep to report about it, I would think that would mess with your mental state. But if it does mess with your mental state, it's about to mess with both of ours because, Chris, we do have some breaking news to talk about unfortunately, and that breaking news is about Mr. Christopher Herndon. He had that DUI charge. Everybody was waiting for the suspension to come down, figured it would probably be a game or two, but it's a little bit more harsh than that. Yeah, I I was under the impression I thought it was just going to be a game or two, but he got four games. Uh, I I was caught off guard by it when I heard the news. I was driving back home and I saw it, and then so I got home and decided to take a look. And I saw uh, Brian Costello, the New York Post, wrote and he got it for the NFL Network that uh, you know a first-time offender for DUI normally gets two games unless the league determines there are aggravating circumstances. Obviously, there were aggravating circumstances here, and that was the fact that the, uh, the woman in the car that he hit uh, suffered uh, the claim she claimed bodily harm due to the crash, which was she said she suffered a uh, bruised or bruised and gassed gashed arm so because of that he got next two games well he could probably appeal it but it doesn't seem like that's likely to happen if he he got the four games with that there so he's most likely going to miss the first four games and that that's not going to be a a, you know good news for the Jets it was one thing to have him miss a game or two it's the first quarter of the season they don't have their starting tight end and they don't have anybody who gets 
we can really feel comfortable starting the first four seasons of the game at tight end there. So they're basically just going to be running those the offense for the first four weeks with, uh, you know, an offense that only has a blocking tight end in there. We're going to get to this a little bit more in the mailbag because we had questions about this, but is there any chance, Chris, that this gets reduced on appeal? Yeah, I mean, there's always a chance, but, uh, you know, when they say that they gave it to them because those extra two games, because somebody had suffered bodily harm, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, take a guess and assume that they looked into that already. So I don't see, I'd say it's very unlikely at this point. And that's, you know, that's pure speculation on my part. I haven't looked into it. I don't know anything about it right now. But if if it was she suffered bodily harm, I don't really see a way for him to wiggle out of that at this point. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Now let's talk about some news that's much more unpleasant, unfortunately, than what happened with Christopher Herndon and the suspension. And like I said, we've got mailbag questions. We're going to address what the Jets may do now that Herndon is going to be gone, most likely for the four games, unless something happens that we're not anticipating in terms of the suspension being lowered. And that, of course, is the passing away of former New York Jets head coach Walt Michaels at the age of 89. A lot of people don't remember, but Walt Michaels was actually an outstanding linebacker for the Cleveland Browns back in the old days of the NFL before the merger. He was a five-time Pro Bowler and then went on to be a longtime assistant coach, first with the Raiders and then with the New York Jets. He was an assistant there for 10 years before leaving to go to the Eagles. And it's funny because this was kind of the same path that Rich Kotite went down. He was a longtime Jets assistant then went to the Eagles, got his shot as a head coach there for the first time, and then came back. In this case, Walt Michaels didn't get his first shot as a head coach in Philly, but he did move up the ranks and then ended up coming back to the Jets in 1976 after Lou Holtz failed. That was a miserable experiment before he went running back to Notre Dame. That's when Walt Michaels was given the shot as head coach. The first year he was there, the team was absolutely terrible, but then the next two years, they really turned things around. They went from three wins to eight wins in each of the next two years then he had a rough patch in 1980 and in 1981 and I've talked about this a lot on the podcast in fact when I had Bruce Harper on we talked about this when Wesley Walker came on we talked about this and I want to do an entire series on the 1981 season at some point because it's one of the most fun seasons in Jets history the team started off terribly to the point where people expected Walt Michaels to get fired in season but then they completely turned it around they won 10 of their last 11 games the sack exchange really took hold that year the Jets were on the right path and then the next year is when they went to the AFC Championship game. Right after that, unfortunately, though, is when Walt Michaels found himself in a power struggle with the powers that be with the Jets and was forced out. Joe Walton, who was his offensive coordinator, was shoved into the position. A lot of people, including Connie Carberg, who's a former guest of this show, the first female scout in the history of the NFL and the one who discovered Mark Gastineau, has said that everybody knew at the time, and in retrospect, it seems pretty clear that the Jets were on the verge of something special, and if they just kept Walt around, they probably could have continued that momentum, and the momentum, unfortunately, instead ended up grinding to a halt. 
to this day, I think that kicking Walt Michaels out the door was one of the bigger mistakes that the Jets franchise made. Later on, Michaels actually resurfaced in the USFL. Jeff Perlman, who was a guest of this program to talk about his book on the USFL, revealed that Donald Trump, who was the owner of the New Jersey Generals at the time, had a deal in place to get Don Shula out of the NFL and into the USFL, but it ended up falling apart at the last minute, and so he brought back Walt Michaels. And on top of that, Bruce Harper revealed on this program that Walt Michaels had brought him in for a tryout because Michaels was one of the ones that really took Bruce under his wing when Bruce was brought in as an undrafted free agent out of Kutztown State, really took a liking to him, tried to get him out of retirement for the USFL, but unfortunately after some tryouts, Bruce Harper's knee just couldn't hold up, and so he realized this was not going to be for him. And that was the last anybody really saw of Walt Michaels on the football scene. He kind of faded into obscurity after that, and unfortunately, he sort of lost his place in Jets history as a coach. People don't really talk about him now, but like I said, they were really on the verge of something special, and from the people you talk to, whether it's Bruce Harper or Connie Carberg, who, by the way, is going to come back on the show and share some memories of her time with Coach Walt Michaels and how much he meant to her and talk a little bit about his legacy, it really becomes clear once you talk to those people that Walt Michaels was a presence and somebody that had a major impact in a positive way in a lot of people's lives. And he passed away at the age of 89. It's a real shame. I know that he had a good life and he was able to live a long time, but still it's a shame that Walt Michaels passed away. And it's a sad moment, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't have too much to add. I was before my time. I was born in 1980, so I wasn't too familiar with him. I know I've heard the name here and there. Uh, but you know, I'm not the. I I have a, a decent understanding and a knowledge of Jets history, but not in comparison of the history buff that you are there. So uh, I don't have too much to add there. But obviously, condolences to his friends and family and and everybody who knew him. But yeah, you know, it, it's it's crazy to think about though that how how close teams can be and how uh, quick things can change because of power struggle and how that can change alter the direction of a franchise this is the overtime podcast network when joe walton took over he was somebody that was very much loved as an offensive coordinator and then a lot of the players really started to hate him as a head coach that was something we kind of saw with adam gase in miami a lot of the players that played for him when he was an offensive coordinator loved him but then when he went to miami as a head coach he came across a lot of people that didn't love him so much we're going to see if he learns from that the way that perhaps joe walton never did And I hope that the results end up being different than they were in 1983. But that is all, of course, an aside to the main thing that we're talking about, which is the loss of Walt Michaels. So as you said, Chris, condolences to his friends and family. And I look forward to having Connie Carberg on the show to share her memories of Walt Michaels and talk a little bit about the man's legacy. And with that, let's jump into the mailbag. First question comes in from Brian at Go Whiskey. He says, looking back, do you think Mac had any sort of hunch that he was on the hot seat going into the draft? I can't remember when we first saw the Pauline and Lombardi reports, but I want to say it was before the draft. If you ask me, McCagnin probably thought he was safe for at least another year. So, Chris, I'm going to let you talk about this in a second because you probably know more than I do. From what I recall, Lombardi's report came out during the draft, and Pauline had been talking about it before the draft. So there were some whispers. I think that McCagnin probably thought he was safe 
because of the fact that he went through free agency and they were letting him do the draft and he picked Sam Darnold. So he figured, okay, I'm going to at least get a year here. And I think he probably was caught by surprise. I don't know this as well as you would, Chris, because you have sources clearly, but that was my impression. Yeah. So here's as far as him being uh, surprised or thinking he had a year, uh, I wouldn't say he was surprised. He he had to have a, a he he definitely knew that he was you know something was going on behind the scenes. I do think that he he definitely had thought that he was going to have the year play out after free agency with the draft approaching then. And then we we asked him about it. I forget when we first asked him about it. At what point? Yeah, what day of the draft it was? But he knew something was going on. Now, I don't think that he thought that it was actually going to come to him getting fired at that point. Um, from everything I've heard and told, he was caught off by that. But he knew something was going on. He knew there was, uh, you know, we knew about it. Again, everybody else knew about it uh, around the league. He knew that something was going on to, there, too. I just don't think he thought that it was going to be executed quite that quickly at that time. And he was a little caught off guard there too. Um, yeah, I, I know I forget exactly how I worked with Paulie and talking about it. I don't remember if he was openly talking about it or if he just responded uh, to Lombardi's uh, article by saying, yeah, I've been hearing that too. But I, I know that that uh, Lombardi thing came uh, the day after that Friday after the dra- uh, the first night of the draft because I was just coming out of the Avengers movie uh, that Friday morning after the first round of the draft so that's when Lombardi uh, part hit and then I, I think that we probably asked the Cagnan later that day at the after the second and third rounds of the draft but so that came and McCagnan definitely knew something was going on he had to be a little bit worried but I, I'm I'm 98% sure that he did not expect to be fired uh, that quick. He thought he was going to get another year. I should clarify. I'm sure that he was aware of what was going on. But like you said, my general thought here is that he was caught by surprise in terms of being fired when he was. I got the impression that he felt that he was safe for the year, barring some sort of crazy thing. And I'm almost positive that he was caught by surprise being fired when he was. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, maybe he got uh, the day before it happened. Maybe he started to hear or feel that it was coming. But, uh, uh, you know, a week before it happened, if you sat him down, shot him up with truth serum or something, uh, I'm, he would have said, I'm going to get another year and let, let's hope this, we can make the playoffs and make a run and I save my job here. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. <laughs> This one comes in from Jets Joe 73 He says, question for the very big deal, Chris Nimbley. What is the best training camp fight you've ever seen? See, this isn't the, the, the best fight I've ever seen, but the, the most entertaining uh, was definitely Brandon Marshall and Darrell Rivas. Um, that was definitely the most entertaining. Uh, Brandon Marshall and Darrell Rivas were going at it, and then Brandon Marshall was... Uh, given, uh, going after him, telling Revis, you know, you got burnt by Nuke, uh, DeAndre Hopkins and just absolutely going into him. Uh, that was by far the loudest, the most entertaining one. Uh, the, the 
best fight, the actual fight I've ever seen, though. Oh, you know, oh, you know, Cromartie was in one that was great. I forgot who he fought, though. There, there's been a bunch of them. The most entertaining was definitely Darrell Rivas and Brandon Marshall, though. Brandon Marshall just mocking him relentlessly for, if you remember, that play where DeAndre Hopkins just absolutely burned Rivas. And uh, it was, it was like, that was the one, the one time that we really saw Rivas get just fully exposed on a play. And Brandon Marshall just went after him about that. And uh, it, it was an ugly scene. I, I thought that there was going to be like some real violence coming from that at that point. Both of those two guys were really heated with each other. Next question comes in from Thomas Arnone. He says, I don't remember if I read it somewhere or not, but do the Jets have any planned camp scrimmages with other teams? Second part of the question, was the energy of the OTAs a preview of some potentially juicy camp fights between the offense and the defense or if there's a scrimmage with other teams? So I can't speak to the second part of that. I'll let you talk about that, Chris, because I wasn't at the practices. I'm unaware of them scheduling any scrimmages with any other teams the way they did with the Redskins last year with the joint camp. So maybe you know something, Chris, but as far as I'm aware, there's nothing going on there. Yeah, there's nothing scheduled this year. This is Adam Gase's first year here, so he's not going to do that. Uh, He's going to just sit here and get this, uh, you know, make sure he's got everything running smoothly here at the Jets facility and not worry about it. There is definitely advantages and disadvantages to uh, to scheduling with other teams. One thing it is, it does raise the intensity, uh, the energy of the practice. The players get tired of playing, practicing against their own team, the same players every day. It's good to go and mix it up and and to have different defenses and offenses show different things. So that stuff is good. But it's also bad because they the players a lot of times look at this as, hey, it's it's time to fight now. And I would have given an answer. Honestly, I would have given an answer of uh, the the camp last year where they went down to Washington uh, at, for the last question about the best training camp fights. If I could only remember who who went on Washington, they were fighting with, but I couldn't. But there was a bunch of fights at that practice. If you remember, there was fights that like spilled into the crowd, and like, and this is the best fights are the ones that turn into brawls, and you can't really tell who's doing what. It's everybody going together. Uh, there was at at the end of OTAs, it started to get a little bit chippy. Kalichi uh, uh, Assembly was was getting in a couple of things with people. Ben Braden uh, delivered a huge thunders clap to someone inside of someone's helmet. Um, generally, what happens though? training camp as the dog days of the camp go on players getting sick of practicing against each other they're done and ready to get done with training camp that's when the fights start breaking out and then that's when the coach will call cut short practice a little bit and then try to dial it back but they're ready to go out there and play preseason games and actually hit people so it, it's really hard to sit there and play football at like that speed without doing the physicality. So eventually that starts to slip out and then somebody takes offense to it. So yeah, that, that's, uh, that's the down part of doing the joint practices is it's kind of inevitable that there's going to be big brawls. And then obviously players can end up getting hurt that way. 
but the coaches don't like that part of it because they want you practicing. This is practice time. They want you to put the work in. They don't want to have to be breaking up fights. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Next question comes in from the Jet Ranger, and this is pretty good. He says, let's talk peak off-season topics. If you were to have a team to survive a zombie apocalypse using five current Jets players or coaches, who would you pick? I'll go first. So I want Adam Gase on this squad because you need a mastermind. You need somebody who's willing to think up a game plan, who's shown a penchant for being able to be sneaky and creative. And Gase has certainly been able to do that. So he's the guy that I would want for that position. As far as just brute strength and such, I definitely want Brian Winters and Kalecio Semele because I feel like those are the guys that when things get hairy, they're really going to take care of business. I want Le'Veon Bell because you want somebody with that speed and agility, and he's the one on the team that I think has shown that he has the greatest ability to offer you that kind of combination. And then I want Jamal Adams because I need a little bit of entertainment in my life. If I'm getting attacked by zombies, I need somebody who's going to at least make me laugh. So that would be my team. I would want Adam Gase, Le'Veon Bell, Jamal Adams, Brian Winters, Kalecio Semele. What do you think, Chris? See, I got a lot of the same answers, so I'm going to have to go and throw in a couple different things. I got to go with you with Gase, though. I, you need somebody who's willing to be sneaky and willing to just be the absolute bad guy. And you, you're going to need somebody to have that survival instinct, somebody who's just not going to care. And I'm not that person, but if Adam Gase is there, I'll let him go ahead and do that. And I have to, I have to agree with you on this and Brian Winters. I, I could try to go a different direction with Winters uh, because obviously you have to take the brute strength of assembly. I could try to go with like a defensive lineman to match Winters' brute strength, but I want I want the uh, I want Winters' hunting and fishing uh, capabilities too. I know I know he can do all that stuff, so I I, I want that as well. I, w- I was going to say Jamal as well because I I need somebody who's just relentless and go after that. But, uh, you know, instead of that, I will go with Jordan Jenkins instead of Jamal there. And I'm going to go with Jordan Jenkins for what I said about Winters, too. I know he can, he can do the fishing and hunting stuff. So, you know, I need some, I can't do that stuff. That I'm not built that way. I'm not surviving any type of zombie apocalypse. I need my hunters. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to take him to pair with Winters to go with the hunting. And then similar theory, uh, strategy here. But I'm going to combine your answers of Le'Veon and Jamal into one, and I'm going with Robbie Anderson. I'm going with Robbie so I can just get the, the speed to go chase down whatever needs to be chased down, and he's going to be in my entertainment because I'm just going to sit there and laugh with Robbie all day long over God knows what. And, I, and I'm just going to have a whole lot of fun just hanging out with Robbie and letting him run down the food floors or whatever. That that was absolutely a fun question. That, excellent question there. Absolutely. I really enjoyed that question. And I will say, you said players and coaches, so I didn't pick the guy that would have been my number one choice, which is Bam Bam Douglas, because he gives you best of both worlds. You get the brute strength 
and you get the acumen. Little bit of both, the brains and the brawn from Joe Douglas. So that's who I would have had as my number one choice if he was available. But unfortunately, you're limited to players and coaches. So we had our respective squads, and they were fairly similar. And I think that that was a fun exercise. We'll have to revisit that one down the line. Maybe we'll revise our choices after we watch the 2019 season play out. Next question comes in from Ben Marsh. He says, what is going on with Morris Claiborne? He's not a Pro Bowl corner, I get it, but he's still decent enough. Why haven't the Jets signed him or anyone else for that matter? It's an obvious need and fit. If not him, who? They've got to do something at cornerback. So I agree, and I actually brought this up with Matt Stipulkowski earlier this week. I brought it up with you a bunch of times, Chris. I've talked to Daryl Slater about this. From what I understand, Claiborne was rehabbing an injury, but by now he should be in decent enough shape, and you got to figure he'd at least be ready by the time the season starts. As Ben said, he's not a pro bowler or anything like that, but he's been here two years. You know he's at least reasonably capable. And if you look behind Daryl Roberts and Tremaine Johnson, you got nothing there on the outside. Brian Poole is there for the slot, but who do you have? Derek Jones, Perry Nickerson, Jeremy Clark. You have nobody with any real NFL experience, so they've got to do something. I would think that Claiborne would make the most sense of the available options, but if not him, maybe somebody that gets cut in training camp or maybe a trade. I don't know, but there's no way you can go into the season with your only two capable outside corners with any kind of experience being Tremaine Johnson and Daryl Roberts, right? Yeah, I mean, you'd think so, and I'd agree with you. Uh, from what I've heard, my understanding is a lot of it, at least before McCagnan got fired, was let's let the training camp and preseason play out and let's give Daryl Roberts a chance to see uh, him and Tremaine Johnson really be the guys outside and see if that, that'll work for us. Because if you bring Morris Claiborne back now, then you have to pencil him in as a starting corner outside there. And then you're not getting uh, them to look at Tremaine Johnson and Daryl Roberts that they would want to look at them. They're not giving them that type of look. So the thinking was, we'll let them handle everything in training camp and pre- start a preseason, see how this plays out. And then if we need to, we can go ahead and call Morris Claiborne up now, with, with Joe Douglas in here now, I don't know if he's going to have the same feeling. If he'll be sitting there, you know, Mike McCagney, I'm sure, had uh, Claiborne's agent's number right there in his cell phone, right at the top of the Rolodex, ready to call if need be. I don't know if where Joe Douglas would feel fall on that, but you look around at the what's available now, and he's going to be at the top of any, everybody's list. So, well, but I still think you're going to let them see how it plays out with Tremaine Johnson and Daryl Roberts in camp in preseason. And then we wait to see about training camp cuts as well because chances are somebody is going to get cut uh, after the final rosters are the rosters are finalized for everybody who's probably got more upside than Morris Claiborne too. But I'm with you guys. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. I just think that it will make more sense to do after training camp and let them get the work in so they can really evaluate where they are at this stage, this stage of their careers. Next question comes in from Gus Toon. He says, gentlemen, indulge me if you will. If Bill Belichick had this current Jets team, how far do you think he could take it? I can't wait for training camp two more weeks. Woo! <laughs> These are the kind of questions that you get when you're waiting for training camp. 
I would say that if Bill Belichick were the head coach of this team, it's a playoff team, no question. I don't know how far they would go beyond that because I don't know that they're talented enough to make a deep run. But I absolutely believe that this is a playoff team if Bill Belichick was the coach. And I'm not sure that I would say that about any other coach. He's just a special football intellect, the likes of which we've never seen before and probably will never see again. The closest to him, I think, in terms of just pure football acumen would have been Bill Walsh. But even he, I don't think, was on Belichick's level. So, yeah, I think if Belichick was the head coach of this team, they'd probably go 10-6, and make the playoffs. Maybe they win a playoff game and get to the second round or something. But he's the only coach that I would say, if he was the coach here, they would definitely make the playoffs. I think any other coach, and it's the same kind of story, you're looking at probably somewhere in the 7-9 and to 9-7 and range. Yeah, listen, he's not the if he's the coach here, that means he's not the coach in New England. That means the Jets are winning this division. They're they're winning the division, they're getting in the playoffs, they're probably winning at least one game and uh, we've seen the rosters that Belichick has taken into the, uh, the Super Bowl and won Super Bowls with. And yes, obviously he's, he's had an all-time great uh quarterback to do that with, but he could get this Jets team into the playoffs and win the division. Without, if you know, because again, if you're cloning Belichick and you're giving this to, then they're still probably going to lose the Patriots this year. But uh, if Belichick's not in New England, they're winning this division, getting into the playoffs, and, and winning a game or two. I've said this before, and I have some Patriot fan friends that I talk about this with. You will never see a run like this ever again like you're seeing with the New England Patriots. When you consider that it's being done in the salary cap era and that it's being done because the Patriots have the greatest coach and the greatest quarterback in the history of the sport and have had them both for their prime years, Belichick his prime coaching years and Brady his prime playing years, the odds of something like that coming together again are astronomical. So in one sense, as a Jets fan, you're frustrated and it pisses you off and you just want to see the Patriots lose. But on the other hand, as a football fan, there's got to be some level of appreciation there for what you're watching because this is historical greatness. We've honestly never seen anything this impressive, I don't think, in any sport. This is the most dominant run we've ever seen from a team in the salary cap era of any sport. And I really don't think that we're going to see it again. And when we look back on this, we're going to be telling our kids and grandkids about it. For as much as it's frustrating us now, we're going to say we saw one of the most amazing runs or perhaps the most amazing run in sports history. I absolutely agree. And the thing, the crazy thing about it, like the reason why we had something like this again, I feel confident saying that, it's a really simple reason. It's because Bill Belichick is willing to scrap everything and start over with a brand new strategy. And like he is willing to, uh, he came in when they first started winning, they were a ball control offense. They were one on their defense and they had scraped by and winning, kicking field goals to barely win these games. They go to, you know, uh, turned into this high flying shootout offense when they had Randy Moss. They had the two tight end offense with, and then obviously the guy who turned out to be a serial killer. Uh, then you look at the way that they've adjusted their offense now to using the short game. And then even last year, they did a lot of the short game, but all of a sudden they're running the ball. Why the rest of the league seems to be wisely moving away from it. They're running the ball a lot more. 
Bill Belichick is one of the only quarterbacks I've, or only coaches I've ever seen who is so willing to just scrap everything and start over and start with a whole new design and scheme and playbook and all, all this stuff. Coaches want to stubbornly cling to what they know. He's willing to branch out and try different things. And that is what makes him so great. And that's the thing that I tell people when they say, oh, just copy the Patriot way. You do this with this player and you don't need a superstar and so on and so forth. The Patriot way only works because of Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. And you can't duplicate Bill Belichick's brain. Belichick just understands in a way that nobody else does precisely how to fit certain players into what he wants to do and get the absolute most out of them. The best that I can compare this to is if you're a wrestling fan, if you used to watch ECW, you saw acts like The Public Enemy and Taz and Sabu and so many others that were huge stars in ECW, became incredibly popular because Paul Heyman, who owned the company and was the chief creative force, knew exactly how to get something out of them, something that would be lost in translation when the bigger companies picked them up. And we saw it time and time again when these guys would go to WWF and WCW and fail. And that's because those guys didn't have Paulie's vision or his pro wrestling acumen, understanding exactly how to play to these guys' strengths and play completely away from their weaknesses. And that's what Belichick does. He'll find a guy and he'll say, okay, this guy can do this one thing, so that's what I'm going to use him for. And I'm going to make sure that he never has to do things B, C, and D. That's something that sounds a lot easier than it really is. You have to have incredible football intelligence to be able to understand how to do that. It's the equivalent of being a grandmaster at chess. It's basically the Bobby Fischer bar Spassky thing. You have to be operating on a whole different level than everybody else in the population. And that's just the general reality of Bill Belichick. I hate to use this cliche, but he is playing Grandmaster Chess when everybody else is playing checkers. He's just that much better than everybody else. And that's why this continues to work the way that it does for the Patriots. That and, of course, the fact that they have the greatest quarterback who's ever lived, and that's Tom Brady. Yeah, listen, it's like you started by saying everyone says, why don't you just copy the Patriots? You can't copy the Patriots because they're always ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. So by the time you're trying to copy them, you're already late. It, what they you copied isn't working anymore, or it's been changed. And again, so many coaches want to force players into their system and do things. Up. And look at the, the way that they've changed everything. I just ran through all the different offenses they had. But remember a, a few years ago, it looked like Brady's play was slipping, and everyone's like, oh, he doesn't have it anymore. Well, Belichick's what he did was he changed the offense now. So Brady can't throw the deep ball as as well as he used to and not as often as he used to at least. So he changed the system around Brady to adjust to the older Brady. Brady has physically declined, but Belichick has come up with a way to mask that and for it to not matter. So he can't just copy it because he's ahead of the curve. So when you come and you just take what they just did, he's going to adjust, and then that's outdated all of a sudden. He is willing to adjust and to adjust to his players more than make his players adjust to his scheme. And there's the famous Belichick quote where he says, 
don't tell me what a player can't do. Tell me what he does well, what what he can do. And then he's going to take what that player does well, and he's going to find a way to use it and implement that into his strategy. And Brady adjusts incredibly well, too. The things that he has never lost the ability to do are have incredibly perfect precision timing and on top of that also be perfect at reading defenses. He's just incredible at it. He may miss a throw here and there, and he may not be able to throw the deep ball as well as he used to, but he's adjusted as well as anybody ever could. On the fly, kind of figuring out what he can't do as well anymore and reconfiguring for that. And like you said, that's the famous quote. Brett Coleman was on the show, and he's going to be back again soon to talk about the Jets' rookie class. And he talked about that quote, and that's very important because... It reminds me of that story with Bill Watts down in the Mid-South Territory when they had just gotten Sylvester Ritter, who would later become the junkyard dog. He saw something in him but realized there were weaknesses. He told Ernie Ladd, who, by the way, was a great NFL player in his own right back in the day, when you go out in these towns, I want you to watch him and I want you to tell me what he can do. So Ernie Ladd called him and he said, he's terrible at this, terrible at that, terrible at this. And Bill Watts said, Ernie, you're fired. And he said, what What do you mean I'm fired? He said, I told you to tell me what he can do, not to tell me what he can't do. I want to know what he can do so that I can make sure that I do everything to emphasize that and de-emphasize everything else. Long story short, Watts called him back like 10 minutes later and rehired him. He was just making a point. But that's the Bill Belichick philosophy. It's let's get a guy that can provide me with A and I won't worry about B, C, D, E, F. And then there are the occasional exceptions where he gets his hands on a guy that happens to be exceptional, a lot of different things. But he is the best that you'll ever see at, like you said, Chris, just scrapping plans and starting from scratch and being able to figure out exactly how to use these players Again, as frustrating as it is, not just because the Patriots have dominated the Jets, also because Belichick ran out on the Jets, so it kind of is salt on the wound. On some level as an NFL fan, you really have to have an appreciation for that level of genius and greatness when it comes to football acumen. And that'll wrap up part one of the weekend mailbag. We'll be back with part two tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget to follow Chris on Twitter at CNimbly or at Jets Insider. Read his very big deal work over at JetsInsider.com. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and TurnOnTheJets.com.